Welcome back to episode 31 of Oi with the Terror Already. I'm one of your hosts, Sandra. I'm your other host, Danielle. And I can't believe it's episode 31 and that we're back after a week. So, yeah. I don't know. It was like your wedding present to me, apparently, because what <laughs> it happened to be the week after I was married. And so you would think like it would maybe be me being like, oh, can't record wedding crap. But instead, <laughs> Sandra was on vacation. <laughs> so uh, it was actually nice to have a week <laughs> off. though. It was. <laughs> I had family visiting and I was in Connecticut two weekends in a row. I felt like you when you were planning the wedding, going back for different different events. But it was good. It was just, I'm so tired. I love mm. my family, but I am very happy to be by myself now after like 10 days. <laughs> so you, uh, your mom was in Boston, but then you went to Connecticut? So... The first weekend, I went down a little bit early for your wedding, and then I was in Connecticut until that Monday, and then my sister and I came up to Boston to meet my mom and stepdad, and we all hung out in Boston until Friday, and then I had to go back to Connecticut because it's my stepmom's retirement party, so that was that weekend, and it was a three-day weekend anyway, and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go, so yeah, it was just for me, and my family knows this, it was just like a lot of people and a lot of socializing and then with the wedding too it was just like I've been around a lot of people (laughs) so but it was fun it was a good vacation and your wedding was great and you looked really pretty and Dave looked really good so yay yeah I'm just very like (laughs) relieved now it was nice to have like downtime after we basically just came back here the next day that's good chilled so Really, yeah. the only thing we have to do now is just write thank you cards. So, yeah. Well, I hope. I think Dave, I didn't see Dave on Sunday, but I hope he was feeling better. He said that he was feeling a little, a little queasy after the horror. I guess. Oh yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was making him dizzy. But then I was watching the video you sent me, and it looks like I was actually going in a circle, but mm-hmm. they were just like kind of jostling Dave up and down. So then I was like, I feel like out of either of us, I should have been the dizzy one. But yeah, yeah, he was saying like, I don't know, he was getting hot or something. And then yeah. he like ran outside and I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, the like I've never, I've never done the horror. Maybe, maybe at like someone's bat mitzvah years ago I did, but that was like 16 years ago. But yeah, it looks really fun, but it also looks like mildly terrifying because you really have to trust the people that are like holding the chairs. Yeah. And like, I don't know if other people usually plan it out beforehand, but we didn't. So yeah, I had like my dad and two of Dave's groomsmen and then this other guy that's Dave's friend. And then I think Dave had like five people. (laughs) Um, But yeah, basically people just run out and you're like, hopefully they're strong. Yeah. It's like, hopefully you got like the strong friends, family. Yeah. Yeah, And then I felt bad because poor Zwick, Leslie's husband, he like almost like fell on top of you. Oh, I heard about that. (laughs) He almost crushed you. (laughs) What happened? So it was when you guys were in the chairs, like doing, doing the thing. And it was when we had to rush forward. So we're rushing forward and we were running back. And I think he just like 
there's something with his footing and I don't know. So he <laughs> fell back, but he fell back kind of like a turtle. I did see him like sprawled on the floor. I remember looking over and seeing him on the floor. And I was like, I was holding his hand at one point because he was next to me and you're supposed to. Luckily, I let go and I went back a little bit further because I was like, this is not going to be like at some point I was like, at some point, this is not going to be pretty and I don't want to be the one on the floor. But he came up to me at the end and he was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. (laughs) Like, how are you? Because you went down hard. (laughs) Yeah, later we were talking about it. He was like, oh, did you see me fall? And I was like, yes. No. <laughs> uh, he's a, he has a good personality. He for is. That, so. Yeah, he was fine. He was more concerned about me. And I was like, I'm more concerned for you because I'm fine. I watched you fall. But like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was him or someone else. But uh, someone said, oh, Zwick fell and almost crushed Sandra. <laughs> Yeah, I know Dave came up to me at one point and was like, so I heard like Zwick like fell on you. And I was like, he didn't fall on me. He almost fell on me. But I'm good. Again, I was more concerned about him because like he fell hard. Turtled. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And then I don't know. I think a bunch of like Dave's other groomsmen came up and was like, dude, are you okay? And he's like, I'm okay. Oh, it was that big of a thing. <laughs> I thought he just got up. <laughs> No, oh, he okay. had. He need, I think he I needed know. help. Like I think he needed one of the guys to pull him up. <laughs> wow, I didn't know it was that big of a deal. It was a big deal. So funny. It was really funny. I mean, it's funny because he's okay. Yeah, but it's, it's funny. It's funny now, like looking back on it. But at the time, because I think Anna was next to me, and her and I were both like, "You okay?" Oh, so. No. Yeah. Uh, the horror. The horror. Yeah. <laughs> it's always, there's always a story with the horror, I feel like, whenever people do it at a ceremony or a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, there's always, like, a thing. But, yeah, that was that story for Zwick. No. <laughs> but I'm glad he's okay. I talked to him on Sunday, too, when I was leaving, and he seemed fine, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I think he found it more funny than anything. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, shall we do Oi of the Week? Do you have one? Um, I mean, I could think of, like, a smaller thing, I guess. Um, Overall, I'm, like, a lot more relaxed and stuff post-wedding. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, now we're doing thank you cards. We're trying to, like... We haven't opened all the wedding gifts yet because we always, for some reason, have so much recycling. And so we opened about half the presents at this point, and we still have to go. And one of the gifts, well, it was like credits to Wayfair or whatever, so I guess we technically bought it for ourselves. It was a rug. And I remember Dave and I looked up what is the right size rug to get for a full-size bed? This is going in the, like, guest bedroom. <laughs> so we thought we got the right size. We were unrolling it and put it under the bed, and it, like, is, like, maybe just over half. Like, it barely goes out from under the bed. You can barely see the edges. And then it, like, just covers a little more than half, like, lengthwise or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, this is way too small. The only reason we got a rug for that bed is because it has drawers under it, so you don't want to scratch the floor. Yeah. So, yeah, so now we're going to somehow have to return a rug to FedEx without the wrapping. 
So the idea I thought of is to just put some like wrapping tape around it just so it doesn't unroll at least. Mm-hmm. It looks like there's some type of tape on it anyway yeah. when we were like opening it. So I'm like, wow, this will be never tried returning a rug before. So this will be interesting. I feel like, yeah, because when like when my movers were moving my rugs, they like used like a special tape or something to like. Okay. Roll, they rolled it up and then right. they taped it, but they taped it so, quite a bit. Okay. So I'm guessing like packing tape has yeah. to be okay then. It's going on the outside part anyway. Yeah, it or, should like, be fine. under, but yeah. So yeah, five and a half by seven is too small for a full size bed. So that's the moral of my story. That's that's good to know. <laughs> but that's exciting that you got a bed. I remember a year ago, your wedding weekend, I stayed over at your guys' house for like the first time. I was in an air mattress. Yeah. I know. I always felt so, so bad when we had people over. Like now we at least have comfy couches. Mm-hmm. And like that's better than before that it was a futon yeah but yeah i always feel bad when we have more people over and i'm like here's this air mattress so yeah now we have two beds it was fine i think i was just more like can i just stay upstairs because tim was like running around and like knocked something over and we still don't know what it is Mm, he like knocked something and dave never figured out what it was and i was like i have no idea Mm. so yeah fun times but yay it sounds like you guys are like your house is coming along which is good yeah a little bit it definitely is a slow process but yeah, yeah. the living room is pretty much done bedroom is kind of more done but not totally mm-hmm. the hardest part i'm finding is like just figuring out how to organize everything yeah at least you got your dresser yeah yeah that helps a lot <laughs> which is good so well yeah well i'm sure i but the rug will be fine once you guys just wrap it and tape it. Mm-hmm. And then just hard part's kind of over. It is nice that apparently it looks like Wayfair pays for the shipping of the rug. Mm-hmm. So when Dave and I found out it wasn't the right size, I immediately was like, how do we return this? And Dave looked it up and he saw that it's like 20 whatever bucks to ship it back to return it. So I was like, okay, fine, then maybe don't return it. So then I just, I don't know. I just started doing the return process anyway. Dave was like, oh, sell it on Facebook. But <laughs> it's like, I'd rather just try to return it to Wayfair. Yeah. So I was clicking on it, and it looks like they basically just deduct the price of shipping out of the total refund you would have received. That's good. So I'm like, okay, so at least they're not charging me for it. But no, yeah, which so is good. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now you guys know. (laughs) I know. $23 to ship a rug. Unbeing adult, right? This is everything they don't teach you in high school. (laughs) That they should. The best way to deal with Wayfair. (laughs) Just returning stuff in general. Yeah, that would have been practical. I still need to mail you and Dave, like, my wedding gift. Like, I haven't mailed it yet. Oh, you already gave us things. So. I know, but I have one more thing. And I'm like, okay. I need to mail it this week. So my goal this week is to be like, you need to get this out of the house. <laughs> Just get it out. So you guys should probably get it sometime next week if I get okay. it out this week. But yeah, it's nothing major. It's just a little something. But yeah. Maybe I'll write you a thank you card. Oh, thanks. 
<laughs> Maybe, but I'm not I'm not a priority. So I'll add you to the list. Yeah. Wait till you get it first and then you might just be like, meh. <laughs> just need a thank you card. So all right, let me think. So my oi of the week, and I kind of already told you before we started recording, was last week when my mom and sister and stepdad were visiting, I was like, I'm going to do some laundry because you go through a lot of laundry when there's three people in your apartment or more people mm. in your apartment. I was like, I'm going to do some laundry. So I tried to do laundry Thursday when we weren't really doing anything because my sister had to do like a few hours of work. And with the time difference in London, there's five hours. So she was working from like 7 a.m. Oh. to like 1, I think. So I was like, okay, I'll do laundry. And I go down to the laundry machine at like 9. And some person has just left their laundry in the dryer. And I was like, okay, maybe they'll be back in a few minutes. So I came down half an hour later, still in the dryer. Mm. It's like, all right, I'll give another like 15 minutes. And so I went back down, still in the dryer. But then somebody else put their clothes in the washer. And I was like, okay, laundry's not happening today. My question yeah. is, are you an asshole if you take somebody's laundry out of the dryer, if you know for a fact it's been sitting in the dryer for 45 minutes when you have an app that tells you when your laundry is done? No, because the clothes are clean. You're more of an asshole if you take out someone's wet clothes and do that. I've heard of people yeah. doing that. But That's if you mean. take out someone's dry clothes and put it on top, then you're just like skipping a step for them, basically. Yeah, they just you don't know that maybe they would come down halfway through your cycle and retaliate. Yeah, but no, I've seen that before. When I lived at one of my apartments, I think people did do that. If someone took too long with laundry, there were only like five or six units, so people know usually who it was and just knock on their door. Mm -hmm. But um, I think I have seen someone take like someone's clothes out of the dryer, like put it on top and put theirs in. So I don't think that's bad to do. I don't know. I feel like it's really bad laundry karma, especially when there's only one washer, one dryer. And like, you, I don't know everyone in my building, right. but like, I feel like I have an idea of who this is. And I think it's one of the guys downstairs that does their laundry literally like every three months. Because I've seen a guy do that. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming the person that put the wet, the stuff into wash while the dryer was done mm -hmm. is probably a different person. And they're yeah. planning on taking out the dry clothes to... So I'm guessing it's like, yeah, someone, but yeah, that's annoying whoever forgot because at that point it was like almost an hour. Yep. And I'm like, and I'll, the wash or the drying cycle is like 50 minutes. Yeah. So it's like, it's in there for 50 minutes and then it's in right. there for another hour. And we have an app on our phone that tells us when it's done. Oh yeah. I was just going to ask that. So it's like, yeah. So yeah. It's just like a little pet peeve of mine where I'm like, just take laundry out of the dryer and just. Michaela has like laundry drama with her roommates or one of them. She, for whatever reason, does laundry twice a week mm -hmm. for just her and I guess her occasional boyfriend. Um, so like Michaela never gets why she has to do laundry twice a week for basically just herself and a few of her boyfriend's shirts. Mm -hmm. And uh, my theory that I came up with that Michaela also had is she has to wash her sheets after every time they have sex. Yep. Because, like, why would you need to do laundry twice a week and it's sheets? So. <laughs> yeah. I mean. I think, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I have to do another load tomorrow, but that's because I have to wash the sheets that, like, my sister and mm -hmm. I shared. 
And I didn't have room in my laundry basket. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to do another load tomorrow or Thursday. Yay. But then I'll be done. So, but yeah. There's only one washer and dryer for your building? Yeah. Hmm. Which is like, but I mean, my thing is though, like where I used to live, I used to have to go outside to another building yep. to do my laundry. So I'm like, at least I'm only going down one flight of stairs. Yeah. In the building where it's warm. So like, I'm okay with that. So it's like, it's, it's, you know, I'm slow, I'm slowly getting there. <laughs> Small steps into normal. You can always bring some laundry to my house. If you Thank need. you. I might actually take you up on that. <laughs> that was one of the things I was most excited about with getting a house. It's getting the washer and dryer. Also yours is free. So yeah, I might, if I ever like hang out there for a weekend, I might be like, can I take some laundry? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sometimes we don't even use our machine once a week because Dave is gross and doesn't wash his clothes. It must be a guy thing. He has, like, <laughs> two hampers at this point. I'm a little worried, but whenever I tell him to wash his clothes, he just is like, meh. So, like, like two full hampers? Yep. Oh, no. He's like my neighbor downstairs uh... where they do laundry, like, once every three months. Yeah, he does laundry maybe twice a month, How do you ha- think. I'm going to ask you a question at the end of this podcast that I will not ask while we're recording, but I'm going to ask later (laughs) because I have questions about that. But before we go too off topic, I guess Mm -hmm. we should share our stories. So we did send hints and I sent you the vaguest hint that I could possibly imagine because I didn't want to give it away, but it does. So my story does talk about, like, a crime scene, so it does kind of go into, like, your true crime side, but there's a reason for it. So, are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So my, it's more of an urban legend, technically, for this week, but my urban legend for this week is the babysitter and the man upstairs. Does that Mm. sound at all familiar to you? No. Okay. Unless it's the Babysitter's Club book. No, but I did watch the new Babysitter's Club season yesterday on Netflix while I was on the train, and it was really good. But back to Urban Legends. So The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, it's also known as The Babysitter or The Sitter. It's an urban legend that actually dates back to the 1960s, and it's about a teenage girl who's babysitting children when she receives telephone calls from a stalker who continuously asks her to check the children. Basically, um, the legend details of a teenage girl who's just watching television at night while she's babysitting, and after she's the children have been put to bed, either by her or the parents, the phone rings, the caller tells her to check the children. She dismisses the call, but the anonymous caller dials back several times, and eventually the babysitter decides to call the police, who informs her that they're going to trace the call the next time the person calls. And then the stranger calls again, and the police return her call, advising her to leave immediately. She evacuates the home, and the police meet her to explain that the calls were actually coming from inside the house, and that the unidentified prowler was actually calling her after killing the children upstairs. So some variants of the story kind of have more one of these details. Either the caller turns out to be either one of the children or an older sibling who's deciding to scare the babysitter and pranking them. And then they get told off by the cops. 
There's other versions where the babysitter is killed. There's versions where the babysitter manages to rescue the children and the prowler gets arrested by the police. Um, while there's another version while being taken away by the police, the prowler whispers and says out loud, see you soon to the babysitter. Some versions, you just hear like heavy breathing when the prowler calls the babysitter or the operator says that the calls have been coming from the same house and the phone goes quiet. And then the operator asks if the babysitter is still there and they hear some scary noises, meaning that the babysitter has also already been killed. There's other versions where the children are actually with the babysitter watching television and the prowler starts phoning them, saying that he'll be with them um, like in a certain amount of time. And then after they get the news that the calls are coming from inside the house, they hear a door upstairs opening and then the sound of footsteps coming or heading towards the room where they are. Uh, this version can actually be found in the book Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. There's other versions of this legend where the babysitter years later is now an adult and has a family of her own. And one evening she and her husband decide to go out and have dinner while they have a babysitter looking after their, ch their children. The evening is going pretty well until a waiter approaches their table and says that there's a phone call for her. She answers the phone and she hears, did you check the children? And this is that is uh, that is more of like I guess a popular ending that appears in some of the movies. That's so um, like meta. The babysitter <laughs> grows up to get her own babysitter for her kids. It's like it's really creepy though. And then the last version that is pretty popular is the police inform one of the children that they found the prowler under the kids or inform one of the children or the babysitter that they found the prowler under the kids' bed holding a weapon. So they're is one main origin where the story kind of comes into play. Um, some people argue that it's more of like, it's kind of like, you know, when you're, well, have you ever babysat? I forget. I did once and I was mm -hmm. never asked to return. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, I babys like, I babysat a lot, especially for my little neighbors around the neighborhood. And there is something when you babysit where you do kind of have in the back of your mind, like, I really should check on the kids. Like, nothing can happen okay. to these kids. So I'm wondering, too, if it's also – it does come from another story, which I'll get into in a minute. But I also wonder, too, if there's a psychological aspect of it as well, where it's kind of your the back of your mind being like, you should really check the kids. Like, it's been an hour, and they're really quiet. Yeah. Like, you should check <laughs> them. Because we all know, like, when kids are really quiet, there's a reason. They're not always sleeping. There's a reason. So that kind of too. But I guess I looked into it a little bit more. And this is where the mystery, like the murder kind of comes into play. So apparently the origin of the babysitter and the man upstairs story is actually believed to be a murder that happened in the town of Columbia, Missouri in March of 1950. There was an eighth grader named Janet Christman, Christman, yeah, who had decided to skip on a party with her classmates and she was babysitting for a local family named the Romax. They had a three-year-old boy and who was already asleep um, when she actually arrived. One of her friends by the name of Carol in a documentary that's called Killer Legends um, said in an interview that it was kind of an eerie night. She was also babysitting and she just felt really uneasy, but I guess she was babysitting for a different family, um, maybe across town or something. So basically, no one really knows what happened, but the gist of it is that Janet Christman was actually raped and strangled to death uh, with an iron cord. The killer was likely somebody that she knew. She did try to call the police, but all they heard on the other end of the line was desperate screams telling them to come quick. Police at that time were unable to trace the call because it was the 1950s and it was a pretty small town. 
Um, soon after her phone call to the cops, Mrs. Romack actually tried calling to check in on how the night was, and she received a busy signal, but she didn't really think much of it. It was only when the Romacks came home that they realized that the busy signal had probably been the phone being off the hook, which actually the phone was ne- was laying nearby where Janet actually lay dead. Despite the urban legend, there's no hard evidence that Janet's killer actually placed any calls to the Romax phone on the night of the murder, either from inside or outside the house. So that kind of like not necessarily debunks it, but that kind of would make sense. Um, and also, we don't really know because it just wouldn't be possible to know even back then in the 50s. The Romax found Janet's body on their living room floor at 1.30 a.m. when they came home. There were signs of a violent struggle spread across two rooms. Thankfully, their three-year-old son was actually safe. He had slept through this whole thing. Local police questioned dozens of men in their search to find the killer, and the most likely suspect was actually Robert Mueller, who was a friend of the Romax, and Mr. Romack testified that Mueller, who at the time was 27, had commented on Janet's well-developed form, and Mrs. Romack also said that Mueller had run his hands across uh, her dress two days before the murder. Mueller was also known to carry around a mechanical pencil um, that matched the puncture wounds that the, the police found on Janet's actual body. But police and the Boone County Sheriff's Department bungled the case against Mueller, so he was never actually charged in the murder. And today, this case actually still remains unsolved. And the interesting thing about Robert Mueller was, if I'm remembering correctly, he was also out to dinner with the Romax because it was Mr. and Mrs. Romack and then the Mueller's. And in some versions of, because I've heard about this story before, in some versions they were saying that Robert Mueller had actually, or Mrs. Mueller had actually called to ask Janet to also babysit for their family, but she has said, no, I can't because I'm already babysitting for the Romax. So he knew where she was. There's also another part of the story where because I guess it was the 50s and this was very common where Mr. Mueller, was it Mueller? No, Mr. Romack actually told Jan, like told her, like, if somebody's at the door, here's a gun. And he like showed her how to use it a few times. But it was like, a, I think it was like a hunting rifle or something. Like it was a pretty good sized gun. And when they got home, that was still next to the door. So if it was somebody she didn't know, chances are she would have used that, but she didn't. So that's why they're also thinking, okay, maybe it is somebody that she knew. So that's kind of where the story comes from. Or this story has also been featured in a lot of different movies and films. From The Sitter, which was in 1977, there was also, I thought this was just one movie, but apparently there's several versions of When a Stranger Calls, which is where I know this legend from. There was a version of When a Stranger Calls in 1979. There was When a Stranger Calls back in 1993. And then there's a remake of When a Stranger Calls in 2006. And the 2006 version has... Her name is like... I want to say Camilla. She used to date one of the Jonas Brothers. She's really big in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Belle. Yeah, Camilla Belle. Thank you. She plays the girl that's the babysitter. And Mm -hmm. in that end of the film, he's a... He was inside the house... She was able to get the kids out. The police came, but it like ends weird. Like she ends up in a psychiatric hospital at the end Mm -hmm. and like she has nightmares of him coming back. So it's a little bit of a different ending than the ones I listed earlier. So I just thought that this was interesting that it's an urban legend, but it's based on possible like true events and a true story. 
and how even today, like with babysitters, like even with today's like technology, you know, you still will babysit kids and you're still thinking like, did I lock everything up? Like, are the kids okay? Like mm-hmm. what time are the parents coming home? Cause like babysitting at night can be really creepy, especially when you're yeah. like a kid, like you're like 15, 14. So I just thought that the whole story was just really interesting. It's been one that I've been wanting to look into for a while. Mm. Yeah, the concept of babysitting is kind of funny because it's like a 15-year-old taking care of children. Mm -hmm. I think I was like 12 when I started babysitting and like 13 when I started babysitting at night. But again, that was just down the street from like my parents. Oh, yeah. So I was still like really close to home, but it was also like, you're going to trust a 13-year-old with like a four and a five-year-old? Wow. Okay. So This wasn't when the swinging was going on, was it? No. No. Like just the parents had to stumble to the house down the street. This was a different part of the neighborhood. <laughs> this was the lower part of the or yeah, lower part of the neighborhood. No, this was when they were just like, we're just going out for dinner. Okay, have fun. So, because it's also like, if I have kids, like, would I trust them with a twelve-year-old or thirteen-year-old? Like, no, no. Like now they have all those fancy websites or whatever. Like, look at all these ways we, <laughs> the criteria we have to like screen our babysitters in this database but yeah before it was just like oh here's a neighborhood kid they seem fine yeah they seem normal they're fine (laughs) oh yeah because i was just like i don't know if i would trust like i work with college kids and i don't know if i sometimes trust them like am i gonna trust like a 13 year old yeah people i think are a lot less trusting now i also remember that i had to take like cpr to do like i had to do it for like girl scouts or something but yeah, to get certified. Oh, to get certified as a babysitter, you had to do CPR. So I remember doing that. Certified babysitter. Mm-hmm. I was oh, a certified wow. babysitter at like 13. Did you have a badge? Yeah, it did. Oh my God, babysitting badge. It did. We all did. There was like six girls from like our grade that did it. It was like a Saturday. It was at the East. It was at the so, ECC. Well, I guess that was your way of uh, so. <laughs> If anyone, like, checked your background, they saw you had this badge. Yeah. I was like, I did a babysitting course. I know how to do CPR. Yeah. I don't know if I remember how to do CPR in a baby, but, like, wow. I might come back. I guess that actually is useful, though, for hiring a babysitter. Yeah. I don't know. I might wait until my kids are, like, four or five and then be like, yeah, they can be babysat. But right. they're probably you – know, my kids are going to be little heathens, so there's that. <laughs> You've already decided. There's a 90% chance that they're going to be a heathen. That's why I want boys. I don't yeah. want girls. Like, I know boys are gross and, like, have their weird things that I've heard – like, I just know that they're gross, but at the same time, I'm like, but then, like, I don't have to worry about, like, learning how to braid hair or dealing with, like, hormones or, like, their periods. Yeah. I know. It's definitely more complicated. <laughs> they just don't shower, so that's fine. <laughs> and sorry for all of the stereotypes. I'm sure not every boy is gross, and I'm sure not every girl is hormonal, but, like, with my genes... There's a good chance. <laughs> so, yeah. But that's my story for this week. That was so, good. A little bit of creepy with a little bit of fact. <laughs> mm.
Lupa. I'm curious because you're you sent me a photo and she looks really familiar, but I didn't have time to look her up. <laughs> so I feel like I know, but I don't know. I am talking about a pioneering female journalist from 1887. Um, she was a trailblazer in her field. And she went undercover to expose an insane asylum and prove how unethical they were. And her name is Nellie Bly. The last name sounds familiar for some reason. Yes. So I keep mentioning American Horror Story. But in the mental asylum season of American Horror Story... Sarah Paulson basically is an undercover journalist who pretends to be crazy to get into an insane asylum. And she definitely is based off of this real-life person, Nellie Bly, because it seems like other newspapers are trying to do something similar after her, but she was, like, for sure the first person to think of this idea. She was a pioneer. It's really interesting. (laughs) She's a trailblazer. Yeah. And Nellie Bly was actually the pseudonym for Elizabeth Cochran, born May 5th, 1864 in Pennsylvania. She received little formal schooling and began her career in 1885 in Pennsylvania as a reporter for the Pittsburgh Dispatch. Before working for the newspaper, she wrote an angry letter to the editor in response to an article called, quote, What Girls Are Good For. The editor was so impressed with her moxie that he decided to give her a job writing for him. She started using the pen name Nellie Bly. The name was taken from a Stephen Forrester song. Her early articles consisted of the working conditions of girls in Pittsburgh, slum life, and other topics similar to these. This was at a time when women who wrote for papers typically contributed to women's pages. Elizabeth was respected early on and was given an opportunity to report on widespread issues. From 1886 to 1887, she traveled for a few months throughout Mexico. She commented on corruption and the condition of the poor. Her remarks actually angered Mexican officials enough that it caused her to be expelled from Mexico. In 1887, she left Pittsburgh for New York City and started working for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World. One of her first ideas for the paper was to go undercover to study living conditions at mental asylums. She decided to get herself committed to an asylum on Blackwell's Island by pretending to be insane. Uh, Nellie promised Pulitzer a major story, and he was impressed by her moxie again. Her expose of the awful conditions experienced by patients published in the world uh, precipitated a grand jury investigation of the asylum and helped in bringing important improvements in patient care. So she reported that nearly all night long, she would listen to women cry about being cold and begging for God to let them die Another woman would yell murder at frequent intervals and police at others. For 10 days, Nellie Bly, who was 23 years old at the time, lived side by side with women who were suicidal, violent, and psychotic, as well as other women who were sane, 
but were placed incorrectly at the institution. So that's terrifying. Her findings shocked the public. According to Brooke Kruger, author of Nellie Bly, Daredevil Reporter Feminist, Nellie was a part of the stunt girl movement that was an important part of journalism in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, So to make sure she was thought of as being crazy, she would practice looking crazy in front of a mirror and used facial expressions that had a faraway look to them. She checked herself into a working class boarding house, hoping to scare the other boarders so much that they would call the police on her. She used the name Nellie Brown and said she was from Cuba and would go on rants about searching for missing trunks. Her plan worked and the police were called to take her away. She had a hearing at a New York City court and a judge ordered her to Blackwell's Island. At the time, the island held a poorhouse, a smallpox hospital, a prison, and an insane asylum. Nellie wrote about the poor food conditions of the mess hall as part of her article. She wrote that the tea tasted like copper, the bread was spread with rancid butter. On one day, she found a spider on her plate and didn't eat anything. The oatmeal and molasses served also went bad. The next day, she received soup with one cold potato and a piece of beef, which were also spoiled. Ugh. It's gross. Also, the building was freezing and a draft was constantly going throughout the hall. Patients always looked cold. Within her first few days, she was forced to take an ice-cold bath in dirty water. I think this is considered one of the treatments... And apparently she was sharing two rough towels among 45 other patients. Ew. (laughs) She wrote that her teeth shattered and her limbs were goose fleshed and blue with cold. And apparently the method of taking the bath involved uh, the nurses pouring buckets of water over her head. So she said that she felt like she was experiencing the sensation of a drowning person as she was dragged, gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. Despite the constant chill, the inmates were given light dresses with poorly fitted undergarments to wear. She reported that women were restricted on uh, the amount they could speak or move from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m., At the same time, Nellie made an effort to speak with as many women as she could to get more information. She found a lot of sane women who were immigrants and did not speak English who were placed there mistakenly. Others had limited means and thought they were going to the poorhouse also on the island, not the insane asylum. One woman, Mrs. Cotter, A pretty and delicate woman was punished with a beating from the nurses using a broom handle when she was crying. She said the nurses tied her hands and feet together, threw a sheet over her head to muffle her screams, and put her in a bathtub of cold water. Another woman, Bridget McGinnis, told Nellie about the beatings she received as well. She was held under the water and there was no point complaining to the doctors because they said that the patient's imagination was just running wild. 
and then they would receive another beating for telling on the nurses. Nurses drugged patients with so much morphine and chloral that it seemed to make them act even crazier. Apparently, the attendants found it amusing and exciting to do this. After 10 days, Nellie was exhausted and starving, and lawyers from New York World arranged for her release. She felt regret leaving behind the women, but was eager to start writing about her experience. On October 9, 1987, the New York World printed the first part of Nellie's two-part illustrated series on the front page of the Sunday feature section. The headlines of the second installment read, Inside the Madhouse, or Nellie's, Nellie Bly's Experience in the Blackwell's Island Asylum, and How the City's Unfortunate Wards are Fed and Treated, and the Terrors of Cold Baths and Cruel Unsympathetic Nurses. The public was shocked by her first-person account. The story gained so much attention that competing newspapers basically produced their own opinions on guessing on how Nellie was able to succeed in her dangerous story. City officials started investigating the institutions. One month later, a grand jury panel went with Nellie to visit the asylum, but inmates who interacted with Nellie earlier were transferred or released. The buildings had been scrubbed down and patients were being served better food and water. Despite this cover-up effort, the grand jury believed what Nellie had written. Shortly after their visit, the officials added nearly $1 million to the asylum's budget, an exorbitant amount for 1887. Nellie's two-part series was released as a book two months later called Ten Days in a Madhouse. Nellie established a reputation as a stunt girl. She wrote exposés of baby-selling rackets in harsh conditions for factory workers. Two years later, she garnered even more attention for her series, following the same route as Phileas Fogg from Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, and she made the trip around the world in 72 days. When she returned, she expected a bonus or more recognition, but for some reason, Joseph Pulitzer barely acknowledged her feat. In response, Nellie was basically so disappointed slash disgusted. Basically, Rory at season four or five of Gilmore Girls, where she's <laughs> told once she's a bad writer and promises to never write again or whatever, and then goes to the mansion in New Haven. Uh, so in response, Nellie Bly quit the New York world in disgust. She married millionaire Robert Seaman in 1895, but suffered financial reverses and returned to newspaper work in 1920. Nellie died in 1922 at the age of 57 from pneumonia. Her groundbreaking 10 Days in a Madhouse brought a new wave of newspaper writing. That's it. Wow. Yeah, she's fascinating. So this happened in 1887? Yeah. Okay, because I think for one of them you said 1987, and I was really confused for a minute. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, the beginning was 1887, Mm -hmm. and then last year was 1922, so yes. That's insane. Also, like, that's dedication to, like... I know. And the fact that she was 23, 
And the fact that, like, what she exposed, too. Mm-hmm. Like, she should have gotten way more recognition for that. Yeah. I just like the the competing newspapers, instead of trying to make their own version, were basically just writing their opinions on what mm-hmm. she did. <laughs> Typical. Like, but, yeah, I mean, also, like, back then, I mean, now, but back then especially, it was really hard to, like, be a woman and be, like, noticed and praised for Mm -hmm. especially in newspapers because that was definitely considered more of like a man's job yeah so that's definitely why she's like the trailblazer because she didn't want to just write women's pieces and yeah yeah, i don't know why when she came back from exploring the world apparently people weren't impressed with her for some reason but they were super impressed with her before for the expose probably because she's a woman not to sound like horrible, but probably. Or she like you, she did it quicker than the guy, right? Yeah, I think there was a sort of competition or something going on. I remember mm-hmm. hearing this somewhere else. There were a few people trying to do this at the same time, and she basically beat some other people. So, well, good for yeah. her. Maybe Pulitzer had money on someone else, and he lost. Maybe, although Pulitzer, <laughs> so. This just shows what, like, a musical nerd I am. I only recognize the name Pulitzer because I think he's in Newsies, which is a musical. Oh, that would make sense. About, like, newspaper boys who are, like, rioting back in, like, the turn of the 19th century, like, 1901 or something. So that's what I think of when I hear Pulitzer is I think of Newsies. So I forget that he's actually, like, a real guy (laughs) because everyone in musicals is mostly, like, Mm-hmm. Made, well, unless it's like Hamilton or something, but that's just I don't know. Like you got to give her credit, but it's also said that she died really young because fifty-seven is not not old. But it, if it was like nineteen twenty-two and pneumonia, then there's probably not much they could do back then. Also, nice Gilmore Girls reference thrown in there. Yeah, it's just like so annoying that some guy's a jerk and then basically she's like, oh, I can never do this. But yeah. Continues a few years later. At least she came back. I mean, yeah. I don't know if she had to come back or if she wanted to, but at least she did. Yeah, so. I guess she had to. She married a wealthy guy, but then they had financial difficulties. But maybe she wanted to continue writing anyway. Yeah. I don't know. Did she have kids or anything? It doesn't say here. It just says she mm-hmm. married some guy. You can look it up. Yeah. I don't think I'm I just remember wondering. reading that. Just wondering if that was also like a reason why she didn't go and then, or didn't write and then went back to writing. But if it didn't say it, she probably didn't have any kids. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything about kids. Just saying like married. Robert Seaman, 1895, and then he died in 1904, and she returned to writing in 1920. That makes a little bit more sense of why she went back to writing then, if she was a widow, too. Hmm. Definitely not what I was expecting. <laughs> I was expecting, like, a murder or, like, I don't know. You, threw, you definitely Oh, wow. Threw. He was a lot older than her, 1822. I'm trying to do math. <laughs> he would have been 100 when she died. <laughs> Yeah, he was born in 1822, and she was, like, 23 in 1887. So, about 20 years older? Hold on, 1887 minus 18... We can do this. 60? 50? 50-something? So, he was was born 
She was born in 1887. When was he born? 1822. 65. So he died when he was either 81 or 82, but the reason Mm -hmm. he died was from heart disease, from injuries, from being struck by a horse and wagon while crossing a street. That's unfortunate. (laughs) That's like being hit by a car today. So yeah, apparently his relatives were suspicious of their marriage, thinking that she married him for his money. And then someone else in a magazine wrote that it was probably her stunt reporting where she was pretending to be married to him and then would write about it. Probably. Maybe. I mean, it's not like she, like, pushed the guy in front yeah. of the person <laughs> At the age of 81 or 82, the way to die is by being hit by a horse and buggy. Which is not funny, but that is like being hit by a car today, though, and that does happen. Yeah. But it's also just unfortunate and painful. But yeah, apparently no children. Uh, That's sad. But maybe, well, I mean, with their age difference, maybe that's a good thing. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to another episode of Oi with the Terror already. We release new episodes every Thursday on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Um, we have a Facebook and Insta- Instagram page, both called Oi with the Terror Already. And you can follow and like our stuff. If you have any story suggestions or spooky ghost stories for Halloween, you can email us at Oi with the Terror Already at gmail.com. You can also, I guess, on our Anchor website, you can also like pledge as well. I discovered that a few weeks ago, and I always forget to mention it. So that is an did option. You pledge? Did you pledge? I did not. <laughs> I did not pledge. But I saw it and was like really confused. <laughs> yes, that's one of the options we have is like to share that to mm-hmm. um, our social media if we want. Yeah. So it hasn't gotten to that point yet. No. That if is you, an option. If it's an option. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you choose to, it's there. So... I don't know. <laughs> I guess I guess we'll see you guys next week. Bye.